It is the Bob McCowan podcast brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. McCowan, Shannon, with you today. Um, a fascinating conversation coming up, I think. Well, you like this stuff. This this is right up the business of sports alley, isn't uh, well, it? It is, and it is exactly what I like looking at and talking about and thinking about. Um, the money that has gone into rights fees of late is astronomical. Oof. It is a staggering. And it's, it's going to go crazy. And like the NBA, Bob, the NBA is going to, you know, it's going to be billions billions and billions their new deal coming up it's everybody it, the everything crazy. is billions now yeah it's, it's no longer millions it's billions and it's a staggering amount of money and you wonder about how this is afforded but it still is and even though they go up dramatically the rights go up dramatically for every league uh, on an annual basis yeah um there's still and, more out and, there. and and don't you want don't you wonder if people will actually stop following or or how how will they continue to watch that i mean like who is the big 10 now in college football who you know when when i was a kid well there know, were the, 10 teams in the big 10 and i could name them all yeah and there, were, and there was a pack eight when i was a kid uh and 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 the the winner of the uh the big 10 and the winner of the pack eight played at the rose bowl and that was it well, yeah. now it's not that way anymore. Now you need a map. <laughs> well, we're going to address all this rights fees and um, what they mean, what is happening and what is going to happen. William Mao is the senior vice president of media rights for Octagon. And he's a guy who spends all his time addressing this kind of stuff. And he will join us after these messages. McCowan and Shannon back with you uh, again, and we are joined by uh, William Mao, who's the Senior Vice President of Media Rights for Octagon, um, and uh, we welcome you. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to uh, join us today. We are in a most interesting time for uh, rights discussions in, uh, in in sports. I was going to say professional sports, but really it's, it's sports in general. Let's start first with college football, because something is... Uh, is happening in, in college football. And it began, I guess it began a few years ago, but really seriously last year when we heard that USC and UCLA were going to join the Big Ten. Uh, and that is upcoming. And that leads you to this Super League, really, in college football. What do you think the impact media-wise will be of the big the new Big Ten? Well, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me on, guys. And and that's Definitely a question that, you know, our team here at Octagon has been working on in, in terms of uh, advising clients and, and um, talking to the market about. I think what makes this particular uh, instance of it with USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten so different from conference realignment and, and institutional realignment in college sports, which happens, you know, every decade or so really tied sure. to the length of deals, is simply because of the fact that this one kind of broke through the traditional cornerstone concept of regional regional affiliation, right? Even if schools like an Oklahoma and a Texas move from the Big 12 to the SEC, still regionally, there's still some connectivity there. Whereas two schools from Southern California going to a conference that is predominantly still Midwest, but extends out onto the Eastern seaboard now uh, with Rutgers and Maryland, it, it seems to be a, a fundamental shift in the concept of it. And that's why to your, to your point, Bob, there's been a lot of conversation of what is, does this bode uh, and, and, and signal that there's these kind of more non-traditional super leagues that, that will, will form. We've already seen some of the deals that these conferences are now striking in their next cycle. They're shorter term, maybe as a function of the continued uncertainty, not only of the evolving media landscape, but also the fact that there is this realignment that is potentially non-traditional going forward. Um, but the Big Ten got a big bidding increase earlier uh, in the week. Uh, yesterday, the Big 12 is, is supposedly close to finalizing their next six-year deal renewing with ESPN and Fox for a sizable uh, increase as well. And they were uh, in the kind of early stages of this latest round of realignment where they picked up four institutions, three from the American and independent BYU football after losing 
uh, Oklahoma and Texas to the SEC. So these these realignments, they're already starting to to generate that kind of incremental rights fee increase that we were expecting. Does it really matter, though, Will? I mean, we're, there's the same amount of college football teams uh, and stadiums are packed. Um, so, so what is the measure of all this? Where, where, what's the impact of it? So from a media rights perspective, not all matchups and not all games are created equal. I think uh, even a, a, a layman sports fan of any sport would, would agree that rivalries matter, specific matchups matter. And, and you'll see that a lot of this realignment has come in pairs, right? OU and Texas, biggest rivalry in the historical Big 12. They moved together to the SEC to preserve that rivalry and that matchup broadcast, which was the you know traditionally the highest rated broadcast of that rights package. So we're starting to see that across uh, across these moves that it's about not only the institution how they perform on the field, what their fan base is, what media market they're they're bringing along with them, and if they're coming with a, a rivalry partner, how strong is, is that rivalry to the broader media rights value? There was a time when the Pac-10 was considered as strong as uh, the Big Ten. Pac-12. Pac it became the Pac-12, too. Come on. Well, now. it did. Get your numbers right. Uh, but well, I'm going back a, a, a ways to the, <laughs> the time when the Big Ten was actually 10, actually 10 schools in the Big Ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, why do USC and UCLA perceive, or, or did they accurately perceive, that um, – the the Pac-12 is no longer um, of the same of the same ilk as the Big Ten. Well, I think part of their relative decisioning, and I think even between USC and UCLA, slightly different, given that one is private and one's a public institution. A lot of it does stem from the economic element of it. Um, you know, AD Martin Jarman over at at UCLA made it very clear that. Part of the decision was around the fact that they needed what they believed to be the economic benefit of moving to the Big Ten conference. Otherwise, they may have to cut back on the number of sports that they were sponsoring across the athletic program. Furthermore, um, this gives those institutions an opportunity to do coast to coast um, alumni engagement and uh, fundraising, right, to find multiple reasons now from a game perspective to be traveling out to the New York market when UCLA plays Rutgers or to go down to the DC market DMV when, when they, they play at Maryland, these are more natural organic opportunities to rally your alumni bases in those parts of the country to your cause, which then hopefully generates that, that sort of economic return on the advancement side of the institution separate and independent from what they believe will be a per school increase in what they get as being a even a 16 member, 16th member of the Big Ten compared to a, a one twelfth member of the Pac-12. The one school, sorry, John, the one school that seems to be inevitably targeting the Big Ten, I think, is Notre Dame. But I don't know whether that's, in fact, the case. Have you heard anything about them? I, th I think it's more likely than not that that Notre Dame will remain independent. And I say that for and not at least not be part of the Big Ten in the near future. And I say that for two reasons. One, they enjoy the benefit of being a singular tentpole premier college football property on NBC. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they get as many free to air linear broadcasts per season as the entire Atlantic Coast Conference does in a given football season, right? Six and six last year. Um, the economics are there right now from, from NBC. Uh, and so they benefit from that. And then the other part of it is a little bit in the devil in the details in terms of their affiliation right now with the Atlantic Coast Conference. And none of this is, is uh, non-public information. It, it's, it's been reported on, right? Outside of football, they're a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference. And as part of that, relationship if they choose to move their football program to a conference the first one they have to talk to is the ACC so as much as the Big Ten may aspire to want Notre Dame in their fold there are existing agreements partnerships arrangements that they will have to uh, navigate before that can happen is college football a good buy Will I mean when you look at the, the amount of money being spent on the NFL uh, when you look at what the NBA is now going through with their new their new rights deals on multiple platforms, where does college football fall in? Because it seems like there's 
a ton of money available for college football. It's a it's a unique uh, property in terms of really having very strong relevance in the U.S. market and very little relevance internationally. Um, you know, in, in our in our line of work, we work with clients and broadcasters all over the world. And really, when it comes to you know NCAA college athletics, it's really only a thing in in the U.S. But it is a massive thing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? People talk about the, the the big U.S. sports leagues. You mentioned NFL, NBA. NHL, MLB, uh, MLS, the number two property uh, from a peak perspective is college football and and college basketball. If you look at the top 100 programs um, on on television every year, 75 to 80 of them are different NFL broadcasts. The only other things outside of, let's say, presidential debates or uh, Olympics every other year that come up in the top 100 is the college football playoff and March Madness. So the, mm. the top end of college athletics is actually the number two property in the United States when it comes to sports. What we have seen, uh, however, is this understanding between the National Football League and uh, U.S. college football that the NFL would be a Sunday property and the and college football would be a Saturday property. And, of course, that has changed. That That look has changed dramatically. Uh, the NFL has gone to Saturday playoff games out of necessity. It's gone to Monday night football. It's now gone to Thursday night football. And while college football is still principally a Saturday event, I'm wondering whether college football expands their horizon and maybe takes over Friday night from high school football even. what What is the future of college football in terms of days of the week? I think you're you're reading the tea leaves accurately in terms of the shift of programming, not only from NFL relative to college football and, and on down, right? Right now, the NFL's Saturday games, right, whether they're playoff or end of regular season, happen in December, December, yeah. January, and that's when college football, at least from a regular season perspective, is, is done, right? There's that kind of bowl season that kind of happens throughout the holidays, and right. then and then it, it ends up with the CFP currently. Uh, in the beginning of January. So there really is, they're, they're still kind of zigging and zagging away from, from each other. Um, but you're right, you're starting to see that uh, college football is starting to migrate towards Friday. And in some cases, there are some conferences in the group of five, we're talking about the Sun Belt and, and the MAC that have already started to play some of their regular season schedule concertedly uh, on on mid- midweek days, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and, and Fridays. And within the power fives, so that's talking about like the Pac-12s, the Big 12s, SECs, particularly the Pac-12 has tried to own, own Friday night uh, for, for their partners as well. Generally speaking, the viewership on a Friday night is not as good as a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday primetime, but it, college football still is, when it is programmed, one of the highest rated programs on a Friday night for their broadcasters. But are we going to see college football butt heads with the National Football League in terms of days of the week? I don't think quite yet. I don't think quite yet. Um, because like, I, I would see it more likely that another exclusive game of the week ends up on a Thursday, like, cause you see what the NFL has done right now, right? There have been some Monday night footballs that are multiple games, right? Two games. In, right. Back. I could see that more likely happening maybe on a Thursday. than I would see them suddenly trying to go after Saturday in a more consistent manner, as opposed to what they're doing right now towards the end of the season. So Friday becomes the, the one day of the week where there is an opening. And yet that is high school football in America. Yeah, I mean, in in parts of this country, Texas, on and in, into the the southern part of uh, southeastern part of our 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 country, football on Fridays is, is in many ways a religion, right? And and those those movies and those TV shows about Friday Night Lights are 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 not hyperbole. And in some of the work we've done with college athletic institutions and and conferences, that has come up concertedly. It's you know, not wanting to play many, if any games on a Friday night in certain parts of the country in certain regions because they know they may not be able to draw uh, as much as they need to because the local high school teams are important to those communities right and the whole thing is an ecosystem right like it it, it it is you play as as a kid you play through high school you go to college and you and, and hopefully you have aspirations to, to make it to the NFL that whole ecosystem of football on a, down to the grassroots level is still a very important piece of the puzzle 
And football seems to have really separated itself, both at the college level and the and the NFL, from every other sports property. Yeah. Why? Sure. Why is why is that? I mean, is it pure and simple gambling? <laughs> oh, I oh I think it's it's already sort of uh, had that sort of trend or or that separation well before any of the the gambling comes into play. And if, if, if you look at betting or at least traditional legal or off the books, right. A, a big part of it's actually March Madness and NCAA men's basketball. Sure. Your bracket, singular. you got you to have your bracket, right? Yeah. You got to have your bracket. And so, you know, that's, that's not football, but I think it's, it, there's an element of the scarcity of it, right. In, in terms of the NFL, let's say, right. You, you have 16, 17 games, now during the regular season, only those many opportunities to watch your team. Similarly, in college football, right? This college football schedule is 10, 11 games before before bowl season, and and half of those are away. So again, it's I think the scarcity of it and the pageantry, the community. These are you know I think uh, Berg Magnus once said on a, on a podcast I listened to uh, that you know these are even though these are national becoming national brands, the teams, the leagues, these are still very local and regional passion points. Um, around these cities and, and around these you know, college communities. What do you think the economic impact of USC, UCLA joining the Big Ten will be? Do you think it will be huge? Huge for uh, from, from whose perspective? Well, from the Big Ten's perspective, I mean, really, this is a television enterprise. Um, it's a rights fee enter, uh, uh, exercise. Uh, these schools are, are planning on getting more money from television and therefore um, being able to share more money, are they not? Yeah, I mean, they they just, I mean, they announced that they're moving, then the Big Ten signed its deal for, uh, through the 29-30 season for, you know, just over a billion dollars per annum. So that's a major increase already. So in theory, you would argue part of that move, you know, since it happened before the deals were signed is kind of baked into it. I'm more interested to see when that 2930 window comes up for renegotiation. Does the USC UCLA move to the conference really further enhance the engagement, the viewership and the consumption of the big 10 media rights package so that the next deal, it gets an even bigger bump, right? I think there's still some logistics they have to sort out. Right in, in terms of the non-football side of of the athletic programs, all the other sports that are sponsored, how are you going to sort out the logistics of, you know, schools having to swing through Southern California on a road trip, or vice versa, USC and UCLA, you know, Olympic sports programs having to go all the way out to the East Coast. Um, student athlete welfare has already been an, an issue that was, you know, in, uh, on the radar as being something to be aware of. I think this type of deal. Uh, sorting through that, navigating those logistics will will be something that people are going to keep a close eye on because they want to make sure that these student athletes, you know, are, who are already away from the classroom for a long period of time, are still getting that a, a student part of the student athlete experience. But it, it's, it's fair to say that, let's be honest, the Big Ten is Ohio State and everybody else. Oh, no. <laughs> That's, that's I don't really know if you're what in the way is. of anything, but I think there <laughs> you, you may have alienated a good chunk of the country. <laughs> well, I don't I don't doubt it, and I, I I'm not I'm not apologetic about it because I think that's the truth. Is tell is the people that, in Michigan that Bob, come on. Well, but Ohio State won what seven in a row, eight in a row. Yeah, but those are Michigan games those, before those, last year. There's a difference between the games that they play and the rights that are owned. There's a here there's a difference between the business plan and the actual game plan. You know. Well, I mean, that's that's always, you know, in terms of the pick order between the, the broadcasters, that's always the number one pick, right? The Ohio State-Michigan game uh, will always be that number one pick. I think what's also interesting to note, it was, you know, shared by, by uh, some of the uh, school presidents and, and athletic directors of these, the current Big Ten schools, is that the Big Ten Conference, one of their biggest alumni bases is in Southern California, is in the California market. Um, even though all the schools are in the Midwest, because, you know, we're in a we're in a world where you can you can live and work, you know, all over the country. And so part of the rationale, you know, Bob, you're asking about the economic impact, I would say beyond just the meteorites deal itself, it's all the other pieces of the puzzle that you're being on television and being broadcasted uh, provide you in terms of being able to, again, engage your alumni network across all the institutions and, and the, the, you know, the tie that that will bring in terms of value to your individual institutions. That's definitely part of the consideration here. 
Well, all I'm saying is that Ohio State is uh, at the top of, 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 the, uh, of the Big Ten, uh, as Alabama is at the top of their conference, and those are the big schools. Those are the two schools that every year are going to be in, uh, the, you know, in consideration for being number one. And yes, and, and the schools that come in that have tended to upset them, the Clemsons and um, this year Georgia, um, they tend not to be in the big from the Big Ten. Um, I, I, you know, uh, Michigan has had it had its one year. Uh, we will see whether they, they continue to be at, at or near the top. But take a look at the other Big Ten schools; they are rarely, rarely um, a, a top five school. Yeah, I think you know recent recent track record would definitely you know kind of favor your position. Although I I do remember a period of time when. You know, it was a relative lull in in let's say the Alabama run, mm-hmm. right? They weren't as as it was kind of. There's a reason Nick Saban got hired at one point to coach Alabama. It wasn't because the guy before him was you know knocking it out of the park and they wanted to hit the home run even farther with Nick Saban. It was because it was a relative down. No, I understand. I I I do understand that. Um, and, the, and this is just this is a football conference association. This USC UCLA Big Ten. Deal. No, it's, it's, no, it's, it's everything. 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 Over. Yeah. Wow, that becomes interesting. So, so Will, as you, you guys are analysts, you look at everything. You're you guys are projecting things, and and uh, you hit on something for me when you said, you know, the it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, when this next contract is over. But but tell me what technology we're going to be watching sports on by then. Isn't that isn't that the the biggest curveball of all? Yeah, I think the the device that you may be getting the signal through may continue to evolve. I would argue, though, the signal itself has still largely looked the same over the last 20, 30 years. The picture quality has gotten better. Maybe there's some overlays and and, and better replay and, and the camera angles are a little different. But not only is the kind of visual experience still very similar, um, the people who are providing you that right. signal are still the same cast of characters. They may be doing it through a different medium, right? Instead of a cable box, it's now through an app. Or instead of your bit, your you know your big television, it could be on your computer, it could be on your mobile phone, and quite frankly, you could sling that signal from one piece of hardware to another. But you know whether it's ESPN or ESPN Plus or ESPN Three or authenticating through your cable provider, it's still Disney ESPN providing a lot of the college football or, or it's Fox. But, but I mean, aren't we on the precipice of seeing Amazon be more involved? Aren't we on the precipice of seeing Apple more involved? Isn't, haven't we already seen hints of that with everything that's gone on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key point is, is hints, right? And this is the first season where Amazon, even though they've been a longtime partner of, of the NFL, through its various uh, cycles of Thursday night football, this is the first season where they've had, they, you know, they're kind of producing the broadcast. They hired a whole army of, of folks to help make every one of those Thursday night football games happen. Previously, they were taking the signal that was being mm-hmm. produced by one of the other network broadcasters or NFL right. network and putting it on Amazon. Right. And so to your point, you know, these, these platforms rightfully so they take a bite of, of, usually something tier one, right? They want they want something that'll move the needle, but they'll take a bite of it, work through all the kinks. And then if it works for them and they think that investing a further dollar in sports rights is a good investment relative to all the other things a major tech company could put that dollar towards and generate a return, then they will take that bigger bite or they'll take an exclusive package. But if you still think of, yes, the 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 multiples of dollars that Amazon is paying now relative to what it did initially for its first NFL package, it still is relatively a small slice compared to the billions of dollars per annum that an NBC, a CBS, and an ESPN uh, pay NFL each year. Well, I'm not putting words in your mouth, so you don't think that these guys at a at a certain point will be a major factor in in rights negotiations? They are a major factor already, whether they win the rights or not, and I think. Um, you know, Apple, Apple and Amazon, mostly Apple has been noted as a stocking horse in, in NFL deals since the early part of the last decade. When I was working at YouTube in, in the early 2010s, that was already the case, right? Apple, Apple's going to be in the conversation and the specter of that 
naturally will, will drive up the price. I think the fact that Amazon was at the table in a very concerted way for the recent Big, Big 10 negotiations did help to get the price to where it ultimately landed with CBS, Fox, and NBC in aggregate. So whether they win the rights or not, um, they the fact that they're at the table is already changing the dynamics of these negotiations, not just in the US, in other markets around the world where Amazon has an has a EPL package or it has, it has a, a UEFA Champions League package in parts of continental Europe, we're starting to see those dynamics as well. Actually, you, that, when you talk about worldwide rights, uh, that leads me to the Apple TV MLS deal. Um, and, you know, I, I think for the most part, are consumers in North America going to be affected by it near as much as we think? Well, as of now, yes, just simply because whereas you could have watched an MLS game on on television, um, you're not going to be able to do that anymore unless you do it through Apple, right? Um, there, it still remains to be seen what the linear distribution of MLS will be now that they've done this big deal with Apple uh, mm -hmm. on the digital side. It, it, it stands to reason that ESPN or Fox is not going to pay as much, if, if, if very much, for this non-exclusive linear-only distribution of, of MLS. So can you explain why they did it then? I mean, I just don't know why. I, I, I don't, other than the worldwide rights, I don't understand why Apple would dip their toe in this one. Well, it was an opportunity. I think uh, that having worldwide rights free uh, and unencumbered uh, from a format perspective is important to uh, a tech company like, like an Apple, a YouTube, uh, uh, an Amazon, because then they can really put their global market marketing force around it, right? They don't have to be, they don't have to have, have any holes in the cheese per se, right? It's not like right. Swiss cheese, but it's not even any cheese that has any, any lesser holes in it. And so it really does benefit them from that perspective because they want a seamless customer experience too, for the most part, so that if you're traveling and, and, and you're using Apple, no matter where you are, you may be able to access the content. From Apple's perspective, this was, at least still relative to the U.S., an important uh, sports property to have, and it allows them to wrap their arms entirely around it and, and, and build around it um, at a relatively less, smaller price point, still, right. you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but relative to, you know, the value of a college football conference package or uh, in, in, its, in its entirety or an NFL package in its entirety, it's still multiple smaller. We have to take a break with uh, William Mao is uh, with us, the Senior Vice President of Media Rights for Octagon, and uh, we'll continue the conversation after these messages. McCowan and Shannon, along with uh, William Mao, the Senior VP of uh, Media Rights for Octagon. Do we get to the point where we are no longer watching any sports on normal television? I don't know what normal television is going to look like anymore, but I mean, do... Is is that somewhere down the road? Yeah, I think you're still gonna. People are still gonna watch sports. It's just where and how right. they do it will ha will have greater variability, which means it'll also be harder to measure how many people are are watching it. Right? If more content goes on ESPN Plus or it goes on Peacock, and and it isn't like a Thursday night football Amazon situation where Nielsen is auditing and measuring the reporting and then comparing it to traditional television you're not you're gonna not gonna know if people are watching it you're just gonna know that the content is somewhere else now um i still say the content will look very similar it'll it'll be on the device you want it to be on i think portability flexibility access on the go will continue to be a important and more important factor uh, moving forward but there will still be sports consumption. Like I said, you know, of the top 100 programs in the U.S., you know, then if the NFL, it's all NFL, but it's all live sports. I just wonder whether we're going to see a time whether when um, when we no longer want, turn on CBS on, at one o'clock on Sunday afternoon and watch and watch an NFL, NFL football game, whether there will be no more of that anymore because. Um, these digital companies uh, have so much uh, potential revenue that they go out and just gobble up these properties. Yeah, I think it's 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 that, but I would argue that it's it's almost the the proliferation of alternative ways to spend your Sunday afternoon. Putting aside the really old school of like go out and exercise and do something, 
Yeah. But if you're, if your goal is to, to consume content, there's so much more content out there these days for you to consume, right? Um, it isn't, you're not beholden to whatever the, you know, free to air networks or even the cable channels choose to program on a Sunday afternoon. If you want to watch a movie or if you want to watch an old TV show, or if you want to binge watch something, there are tons of platforms and Netflix, Amazon prime video, Paramount plus that you could choose to turn on even before uh, you decide to, to, um, to, to watch an NFL game. I think that that is what I think will be a greater risk to the current levels of consumption of sports than, than anything else. Are we likely to see a time when, and I know this is probably a long way down the road, when Amazon buys the rights to NFL football and sells the rights or some of those rights back to a CBS or um, a traditional uh, terrestrial broadcaster? Whether it's Amazon or anybody else, that, that does happen already. Uh, in this marketplace uh, from a media rights perspective, oftentimes, whether it's an agency, an intermediary broker that doesn't broadcast right. itself, uh, but is, is kind of a buyer and seller, they'll buy mm -hmm. it for $10 and try to sell it for more than 10 and, and, and slice it up and dice it up. Um, it really depends on the level of, let's call it freedom that the league or the originating property grants to their the people who license it from them right so like if if the using your example if the nfl were willing to allow amazon to do that then then it could happen but if the nfl doesn't allow sub licensing then like that's just not going to happen right and and there are ways to incentivize properties to uh, allow you to do that as, as a platform or as a distributor usually economic mm -hmm. um but uh absent that I, I don't see that happening streaming services are interesting will because streaming it, it, and what's happened now too is that the regular the regular guys are getting into the streaming system i mean nbc owns peacock i mean abc and, and disney have hulu um you know, are we going to see just more migration of that stuff and yet we, we we notice it in the nhl because the in the abc ESPN deal there aren't as many games on either ESPN or ABC until the playoffs and they all get, get sent to Hulu is is that going to be a factor more and more as as these big entities try to control the content themselves through their own platforms yeah and I think they're as so long as Wall Street or the market um, continues to incentivize them on subscriber growth of their owned and operated subscription platforms they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that the 10 million subscribers they have today becomes 11 by the, by the next year and 12 and 18 and whatever the case may be, because the market is rewarding them in terms of stock price uh, and analyst estimates uh, based on, on that simple fact. And so uh, you will start, you will continue to see that. And it really then begins to beg the question of which properties can really move the needle for, for a broadcaster. I mean, we saw it with Peacock, right? You, you brought them up. They did a major deal with uh, WWE to basically acquire the subscriber base and the, the community that was already built by WWE Network in the US and kind of port them over to, uh, to Peacock. And at the time, I think the number was around 1.1 million or so uh, WWE Network US subscribers. And according to uh, NBC Peacock, Comcast, a large majority of them have have stayed on and then they start to watch all the other content and now that peacock and all the other platforms are not just doing the subscription service they're giving you tiers where it could be subscriptions plus some ads or entirely ads eventually and so once that you get a user into your ecosystem if you have a good mechanism to keep them on the platform watching more content watching the rest of your portfolio and watching the ads well then then that that's a recipe for success but but this is cable this is cable op cable subscribers versus cord cutters isn't it right and then that's where the that's where the um the average revenue per user on on the traditional cable system right you need to compare that with what's going on on the subscriber side right and so you know if you use uh, an ESPN, which was getting one of the, the higher average uh, cable subs fees from, from all the operators and compare it to what the price of an ESPN plus is per subscriber, you can start to do the math of, hey, maybe one single ESPN plus subscriber for an entire year is actually worth 
three, maybe four traditional cable subscribers, just simply because I control 100% of that $9.99 or $10.99 price point that I'm charging them versus I'm just getting a slice of the subscriber fee that they're paying to my cable operator partner. What happens to the regional sports networks in the United States in the midst of all this going on? Do they get do they get dumped? Do they get killed? Or are they basically baseball networks now? Uh, I think it, it's a little bit more shading towards towards the latter. And it isn't necessarily just a baseball network, although baseball is is the most important piece of that local market ecosystem, just simply because, you know, there are twice as many baseball games on, on a local level on a, for a given team than there are NBA or NHL games. Um, in a given market. So yeah, it is going to be largely driven by by the baseball piece. I don't, I would be very surprised if it suddenly went away, just simply because of the, you know, your your the, the teams in the market and the RSN, which are usually is just one in each in each major market, right, are, you know, partners in each other's success. In the case of an NBA, NHL or MLB franchise, the revenues that they currently receive from that local market broadcaster in terms of a rights fee can be anywhere from 30 to 50% of their operating revenue, right? And so in a, in a sport like baseball, no salary cap, you really you really need that money to, to be able to compete and, and acquire players and put a good product out on the field. And so, you know, you, you're, you're, you're invested in their success while understanding that they can't keep paying you more and more and more which is why you're starting to see a lot of these deals not just be purely transactional. You write me a check, I give you the rights to my game. You're mm -hmm. starting to see shared equity and in investment in one another, ownership uh, of the RSNs. And in some cases, the local market team owners, whether it's NHL, NBA, or, or MLB, are starting to potentially even think about just acquiring the entire operation into well, yeah, I was turning say that, it into yeah. a local sports network. Well, I was gonna, yeah. When you consider that, you know, at its ultimate, when they were all Fox Sports regionals, uh, and then they got sold, and then under the Bally title, even though Bally wasn't the owner, the Bally title they have continued. But I, my question is: Is five years from now, who's going to own all these regionals? Who's who isn't? Isn't that they're kind of like the ugly stepchild in, in many ways because you know the, the big guys can afford it. These are the ones that are doing the daily basis and the and the daily regional stuff. That that cost it becomes so vitally important for them, and they haven't had. I'm I'm not telling you something you don't know, Will, but they haven't had the streaming rights that others have had, and that's a big part of what's gone on, isn't it? It is. It's the big streaming thing and 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 streaming uh, situation that you, that you just alluded to. I mean, a lot of the deals that have been announced by Bally's have been to try to get these streaming rights from the teams that where they already have the, the, the local linear rights because RSNs as a concept and as a market is defined geographically and fenced around a radius around the stadium or, or, or a specific media market as, as defined by advertising and otherwise. And those types of definitions really start to crumble in a digital world where people are on the move. And um, even looking at some of the price points that are being communicated by Bally's direct to consumer for the rights to your local market, you know, whether it's $19 or $29, the reference point for a lot of people in the marketplace is going to be how much do I pay for Netflix or how much do I pay for Disney plus or how much mm -hmm. do I pay for ESPN plus. And those are all still materially cheaper than just buying the rights to your local market, uh, you know, sports team that happens to be on a Bally RSN. And I think Going back to that original question of who's going to own it, I would be surprised if it's still Sinclair because they've already, you know, seemed to have hired some bankers and and other uh, institutions to help them potentially shop it around. I I think it's got to end up back with the clubs and in, in the the inevitability of and you for instance you look at the state of Ohio, Bob's favorite state because of the Buckeyes. Um, you look at the two baseball teams and you look at a basketball team and you look at a hockey team. That's a natural partnership between four, four te teams that could own a regional sports network. Yeah, it, it would make a lot of sense. And, and, you know, whether publicly or not, a lot of that has already started happening already in, in parts of the, the country. Right. Some, of the more, some of the more recent announcements have been more overt, right, with um, the Monumental Sports and Entertainment Group owned by Ted Leonsis uh, and, and, and their relationship with Comcast Washington, where 
up until recently, they were a you know, 33% JV partner in one another, Monumentals Digital Network and, and Comcast's uh, linear RSN. But recently, you know, uh, Ted and, and, and his ownership group decided to acquire the remaining 67% of that Comcast linear RSN to kind of control it outright mm-hmm. in the interim. From an, and this is a key detail too, you know, operationally, Comcast is going to uh, still stay on to help kind of operate the the RSN, but eventually at some point they they kind of step away, right? And it entirely becomes a team operation. And uh, it remains to be seen how they're going to have to do the same thing that almost like an Amazon is doing right now with NFL. They're going to have to staff up because they haven't historically had to run a TV channel. You're going to have right. to hire staff right. that is skilled at doing that. And, and that will be when, when you really see if it works. Are you at all surprised at the kind of money that's being thrown around in rights fees these days? Or do, do you do you look ahead and anticipate, well, it's a billion dollars now, it'll be five billion dollars in five years? I, I'm always amazed at at, at the relative um simplicity, not simple simplicity is probably not the right word, but I'm always amazed at like how normal it looks these days to talk about a billion dollar deal or yeah. a hundred million dollar deal. Um, but if you look at it in the content, the way we look at it is trying to benchmark similar properties to one another and say, okay, if property X is going for 500 million and we think this other property is of the same class, either from a performance perspective or just from an objective basis, right? Power five conferences. Mm-hmm. In many ways similar, they are disparate, but in many ways similar, should they all be in the same price point? Like there should be an argument for that. And so then it just becomes a relative exercise. Uh, and and uh, and if you look at it in millions, it just looks like, you know, a hundred dollars or, or uh, you know, a thousand dollars. But do they make money? Do they make money for all the partners? Like when you think about the, the millions and billions of dollars being spent, does everybody walk out at the end of the contract saying, boy, this was good for everybody? I th- I think for now, that's still largely true. I don't think every single deal is a winner. And I think just like um, just like maybe managing a stock portfolio, you're looking at the overall return of your portfolio. Um, and, and depending on what time of year it is or what cycle you're in economically or otherwise, similarly here, depending on the dynamics of different leagues and how they perform well relative to one another, um, you're, you're doing portfolio management. So in an aggregate, am I able to, put together a portfolio of assets that a in and of themselves are generating a singular return, but am I able to then bundle them together from a programming value perspective to fill my entire calendar or from a sponsorship perspective, be able to sell all of these things together at a higher price. I think that's the way, you know, I believe networks and, and broadcasters are thinking about it versus every single line item being a positive return. So, so in other words, if, if you're going to buy sponsorship on my SEC package on CBS, uh, you're also going to buy, you know, prime time and you're going to buy something on the morning show and you're going to do it all. And we're, we're going to drag everybody with us to make money everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think a perfect example, going back to almost our first topic of, of college sports, you know, Octagon is part of the interpublic group of companies, one of the major media conglomerates that spends, helps brands invest close to $40 billion globally across all sorts of advertising formats. So we, we, we have a sense for how, what people are buying and how they're buying it and, and how, they're be, how inventory is being sold. When it comes to college at football, for example, most of the time you're buying college football. You may be able to buy CFP separately, and obviously you can buy 30-second commercial spots on different channels at different mm-hmm. prices. but Normally, you don't get to buy SEC on ESPN at a different price than ACC on ESPN at a different price because you don't know the schedules that far in advance. And programmers need some flexibility to figure out, you know, which matchup they want to put on a, a certain Saturday. So to your point, you buy a flight. You buy right. a flight that has an average price of X. And even in this particular case, that flight isn't based on a specific college conference. It's based on college football in general. But this... The success of all this is based on advertising dollars. Um, and, and advertising dollars have gone up dramatically because rights have gone up dramatically. You pay more, you charge more. And so far, the advertisers are willing to, to go along with that. Yep. But what happens when the advertisers stop? What happens <laughs> when Coca-Cola and Burger King say, 
no, we're not going to pay that kind of money. We're not, we, we can't afford that kind of money for what we're paying, what we're getting right now. Well, I think that dynamic or that specter is not unique to sports or advertising well, of course in it's general, not. right? I think the past, no. the, the incremental cost, as much of the variable cost you can pass on to the end, and, and you, sorry, you can pass on to the end user as a variable cost you're going to do in, in any business. And so it is the advertising piece, but the unique dynamic of traditional media is that it's advertising and that subscription layer, which is the cable box, right? The, right. the cable subscription piece. And that's the one that is on a, on a negative trajectory, right? There's, what do you want to call it? Cord cutting, cord fraying, COVID cord cutting, whatever the case may be. Yeah. The, the numbers compared to, you know, the earlier part of last decade, um, you know, are, are, are a stark contrast in terms of the number of um, uh, sort of cable subscribers in, in the U.S. What's interesting is actually there's a slight reversion and an uptick back in terms of the number of people that are getting television through the digital antennas um, that, that, that uh, has started to increase again in a lot of markets. Wow. Hey, so, uh, I, know, I know. Do you have another question on that, Bob? Uh, no, I was just going to make a statement. You go ahead. Well, no, I just... Uh, I Eight minutes left here. I, yeah, I, I I wanted to talk about golf. I want because uh, the live tour just ended for the season. We we presume it's coming back. Uh, obviously, and they the have PGA, no TV deal. Well, yeah. What's how, how can golf survive two golf packages? It can it, it, when it is where do you see the future of professional golf on television and professional golf period? It's very interesting because, you know, if, if you ask the average person on the street, you know, how many golf properties are there in the market? Most people might say there's, yeah, there's PGA Tour. And, and mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, full stop, period, end of sentence. But when you think about it, there, there's PGA, there's European Tour, there's the DP Tour already. And I think so. I think part of the, you know, consternation with Live is how they came to be, right? I think in who is backing it. I think that has its own, you know, set of dynamics that I will personally try to stay away from in this conversation. Sure. But if we simply said that there was a upstart golf league uh, that was trying to make a go of it, that it was well capitalized and was incentivizing players in a different uh, economic and revenue model than the PGA Tour, what do you think of that? I think you would have a different perception of it as a challenger brand versus what it is now because of who and whom is is backing backing it from an economic perspective because it's another an analogy would be like are, do you look unfavorably at the XFL or the USFL in terms of it's it's trying to to be another domestic professional American football league most people have opinions about it that are not about the fact that it's a challenger man they just don't know if the quality of the product is as good here it's literally like the old usfl when they had were able to actually steal or draft players would join that league out of college right. instead of the nfl that's kind of what the live in in its construct might actually be right you're having the same top level golfers choosing to play in that tour versus the pga mm -hmm. tour which they used to be in but do you, do you expect them to get a tv deal Will they get a national deal in the United States? I believe. I think there's a difference between will they get a deal, as in like, can they get on television? The answer. Well, they can buy. Yeah, you can. You will can buy time. Paid? Will they get paid to be on television right now? I the don't know. Us, will they? Just, can they pay to buy time? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The three of us could buy time. Yeah. <laughs> mostly with mostly with your money, will not with Bob or mine. But that's uh, okay. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, we've got to get out of here. Time is our enemy. This has been a fascinating conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime. Uh, will, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate. Yeah, my it. pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, that's uh, Will Mao of uh, Octagon with us. We'll uh, take the break and come back with more after these messages. Well, there you go, McCowan and Shannon, back with you. Thanks to what, William. What, for, what'd uh, you learn? What'd you learn? Um, well, I learned a lot. Uh, I don't know where to even start. Uh, you know, we began with uh, the Big Ten and uh, the arrival of USC and UCLA, which is down the road a bit. A couple of years. But it's coming. Yeah. And, um, you know, the increased cost, the increased travel that's going to come as a result of this. I mean, there's no bus rides anymore. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be a, a Thursday night, probably Thursday during the day. You're going to have to get on an airplane and go to um, L.A. to play if you're playing either UCLA or USC.
Well, in, in so many ways, and we didn't even get into the uh, the name, image, and likeness concept for for college athletes because they truly have become professional now. And this level of of rights fees even indicates that even more and more now. How how I mean, he as he will said it really college football the number college football basketball the number two sport in North America. That's yeah. what it is. That's what it is. Well, it raises a question too, and we didn't address it. We addressed. I think we tried to address what it means to the big 10, but what does it mean to the pac 12? Yeah. Your two biggest LA schools, your two biggest schools period yeah, are gone, are going to disappear from that conference. And will the Washington's, the Oregon's, the Stanford's will, will, you know, Arizona schools, will they be able to keep that conference a top conference or, in terms or, of athletes? Or do they migrate, or do they migrate to, uh, to the, to the big 12? You know, I mean, I exactly. Mean, or who, or somewhere else, you know, there were five, they were called five, it used to be called five power conferences. You wonder if we can live with three power conferences with more teams. Well, that's essentially what we're going for. I think so. I think you so. Know, and it, it raises a, a lot of questions about the future of college athletics, especially football more than anything else, yeah. more than basketball, because I think conference play in basketball is Far less significant. And well, you have... basketball basketball has other issues. Basketball's basketball's biggest issue is one and done. That's what its issue is. Oh, sure. And they, and they seem to they seem to when you when you look at the numbers and you look at uh, ratings and you look at the revenues of of the tournament of March Madness, everybody seems to be happy. They seem to be except except guys like me, yeah. who don't don't get to know players and don't get to follow players and don't get to, to anticipate the return of players because the best players are gone. As you said, it's a one, one and done. done league. You're right. We got to get out of here. Our thanks again to William Mao for uh, being with us. Uh, we'll be back again tomorrow. We hope you'll join us for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. We'll see you. Bye-bye.